0: Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne.
1: Hello everyone and I hope you're all doing well out there. Now here's my question. Is the US Federal Reserve fooling us? Is it misleading Wall Street and the general public? And here's the big one. Even as it shows signs of slowing down this money printing, is it misleading us on the Real size of the U.S. national debt. Are we really trillions of U.S. dollars worse off than the Fed is saying, as it fuels a rising rate of inflation? Dick Beauvais, the bank analyst at Odeon Capital Group, is here to answer my questions, and he is my guest coming up.
2: the, um, The Fed should not be driving economic growth fed should be maintaining the value of the monetary system in a stable base the fed should be assisting uh, you know to, to see that uh, you know people have you know a place to work but the fed should not be the driving factor in any segment of the economy and and it is yeah uh, and and i think that that's very dangerous
0: A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions and above all, hope for our existential crisis.
1: Well, we have a great show lined up with Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group and we'll take a deep dive into the US monetary system and the Federal Reserve and we look at why this inflation monster we're seeing every day is not going away anytime soon with the US Fed's manic money printing machine in overdrive. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the US are hungry. This breaks my heart and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in
0: need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: My guest is Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group, and he's back by popular demand. We're talking about our present state of monetary affairs. They're pretty dismal in many ways. Dick Beauvais starts by laying out some problems with today's money supply in the U.S., According to the Federal Reserve, the money supply is the total amount of money, cash, coins and balances in bank accounts in circulation. But Dick Beauvais sees a problem here.
2: Well, basically, uh, you know, I think it's become a very complex subject because uh, the Federal Reserve, in my view, no longer knows what the money supply of the United States is. And it's not because... Uh, they're doing anything incorrect or inappropriate, it's because there are so many instruments which can be used as money uh, that the Federal Reserve cannot, if you will, calculate uh, each one uh, accurately. And because it can't calculate them accurately, it simply dumps them and doesn't make them part of the money supply any longer. And therefore, uh, even though these instruments still exist and even though these instruments are part of the money supply, they're just not being recorded and that creates an inappropriate view of, of what money is and what the growth in money is uh, at any given point in time. Plus, you know, it creates a, a secondary problem, which is if you don't know what money is, how do you, how do you establish monetary policy? What, what do you do to create monetary policy if you don't know what the thing you're attempting to, uh, you know, handle is in, a, is, is a number that you can't figure out, uh, you know, correctly. So, so it's 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 really something. I mean, the bottom line for me is that money supply is still growing at an inappropriately rapid rate, and uh, that ultimately will be uh, even more inflationary than has been the case in the last couple of months.
1: Okay, so let's pick up on something you mentioned. Uh, it's not doesn't have a handle on the money supply, and you mentioned some instruments that may not calculate into that. What are some of those?
2: Okay, basically, um if we go back to nineteen seventy when monetarism was I like to say riding the rails, everybody believed in it, the Federal Reserve was, you know, reacting to it, and you know, everybody on Thursday afternoons would, would gather around, you know, whatever machine they had in the office to see what the latest money supply number was. When they were doing that, we had something called M one A, M one B m 2, M3, MZM, L. Uh, and each one of those, you know, if you will, names were related to a, a, a group of different products. For example, M1A was you know currency. well M10 is simply currency. M1A, you start to bring in certain bank deposits. Uh, M1, if we go all the way out to L, you know, we're looking at uh, you know, money and money market funds, we're looking at you know, the treasuries, we're looking at commercial paper, all of which is used for transactions. The Fed cannot figure out what the size of any of these other, if you will, instruments are, and therefore they've cut the whole thing back to simply M1 and M2. And they, they've redefined what M1 is. M1, you know, historically used to be transaction deposits. It was money you can get your hands on immediately and go to the store and buy something, whether it's currency, which is in circulation, or your, your demand deposits at the bank, your checking account, your demand deposits at the bank. The Fed has now decided that your um, savings deposits and your uh, what they call other checkable deposits are transaction deposits. It doesn't matter what that is, but the bottom line, what it means is that whereas M1 historically was about 25 to 30% of M2, today, M1 is about 95% of M2. Plus, the government has come along and said the banks don't have to have reserves against M1 any longer. So it's a, it's a, in my view, it's a free for all. You know, I think they're just simply printing and printing and printing, which I think is ultimately going to be very problematic.
1: Well, you mentioned cryptocurrency. Is that a part of it? A big part of it? In I terms of their, so. ca- they've they've left that out of the balance sheet. It seems.
2: Yes, they have left it. They've left it off the balance sheet, just the same way as they've left off uh, a um, CD, which is over hundred thousand dollars. I mean, if you, if, in the same, same game, you know, if you have a, money, a lot of money in the bank and you buy a CD, uh, which is over hundred thousand, it's no longer considered to be part of the money supply when obviously it is. If you take that money and buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple or wh- whatever one, you know, you happen to like, same deal. You know, the money comes out of the banking system, goes into the cryptocurrency, and it's no longer part of the money supply of the United States according to the way it's calculated it is it is of course part of the money supply of the united states and it is of course you know money which is used for affecting transactions but you know the, the difficulty we have is you just can't take things out of the money supply and say it's not money supply because it goes into some sort of uh, you know category you can't qualify let's assume you have uh, you know, a couple of accounts, uh, 25000 apiece, sitting in a retail money market fund. Well, that's part of the money supply. Let's assume you aggregate those. Let's uh, say there's three $25,000 deposits in this uh, money market mutual fund. You aggregate them into one, which is 75000 It's no longer part of the money supply. You can't do that. <laughs> I mean, we're doing it. But in, in reality, in the real world, I don't think you can do it. And therefore, I don't think that, you know, the, the, the monetary policy of the country is being based upon sound premises or a sound understanding of what, in fact, money is.
1: Well, it, it might partly explain why the Fed is trying to get into the cryptocurrency business, right? Aren't they doing research and developing something there so that maybe the idea is to at least have a better handle on the statistical part of this
2: Well, I I think you're exactly correct. You know, that they're definitely doing a lot of work. I think that uh, the Boston Federal Reserve and uh, MIT have created a joint effort. And in that joint effort, they're attempting to determine how to create a cryptocurrency, which is fiat-based. Fiat-based means it's run by the Fed, obviously. And and they got to move faster because China has already done it. In other words, about a month ago, The Chinese released a white paper and in that white paper they defined what the Chinese cryptocurrency what the Chinese one would look like uh, in in the new system. Not only did they do that but they kicked you know bitcoin out of the country, they kicked the miners out of the country, Mm -hmm. they said there's only going to be one cryptocurrency in China and that's going to be you know the one and and the companies that operate in China are going to have to use that cryptocurrency in terms of affecting transactions. So, you know, there's no question about, in in my view, there's no question about the fact that cryptocurrencies are at some point going to be the dominant form of money in the world. But we we don't have the dollar up there yet. And the Mm -hmm. Chinese have their currency up there already. And they're already, uh, if you will, pressuring, if you will, their companies to make use of it. Uh, and, and individuals to make use of it, so it's 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 a major race. We you know this whole thing about money, you, you, people are discounting it and, and saying it doesn't mean anything, and you know it, it's not a predictor of anything. But uh, it, it does mean something. It means a lot to the people who have it and those who don't, and it means a lot in terms of affecting transactions, and it means a lot in terms of de- uh, de- determining what pricing is uh, in in the United States. I mean, I'd like to use. A simple example, and I apologize, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, one day yeah, I went into the grocery store when I was 17 with my father, and basically, uh, you know, we bought a loaf of bread. And the loaf of bread, you know, cost something around 20 cents, and my father got really upset over that because when he was 17, a loaf of bread cost two cents. So think about it. When he's 17, a loaf of bread costs two cents. When I'm 17, it costs 20 cents. When my children were 17, it cost a buck. When my grandchildren, who are now 17, it costs two bucks. That's what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the fact that if you were, were gauging wealth in loaves of bread or whatever other commodity, you would see that there is something wrong with uh, – a monetary system which keeps expanding and expanding but doesn't buy more and more units of whatever the product is you're attempting to, to garner what you know my father bought his house for three thousand dollars in the middle of world war ii he sold it for ten thousand dollars at the end of world war ii he thought that was a killing right he tripled his money that house today, which is exactly the same house, exactly the same side, sitting in the same street in Medford, Massachusetts, is now worth $650,000. Did, oh.
1: did you hold on to the family homestead?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, he, no, he sold it. He sold it 10000 And if he was right. today, he'd be kicking himself all around the block.
1: Right, exactly. We, we've spoken about this on a previous show about the impact of inflation and you said several months ago that we could be we would be headed into 1970s style inflation at the rate the Fed was printing money. Do you still hold to that? Has it gotten worse? Because what I'm listening to here sounds like yeah maybe we're in a whole lot of deep trouble now.
2: Yeah I th- I, I do hold to it still still because um, not only do we not know what the money supply is but the Federal Reserve does not control the money supply any longer. And I'll give you two examples, one of which is against my argument, one of which is for uh, If you take a look at commercial and industrial loans uh, in the banking system, at the present time, they're declining. Now, what does that mean? That means that these companies are paying down their debt. If they pay down their debt, they're shrinking deposits. If they shrink deposits, they're shrinking the money supply. The Federal Reserve has no control whatsoever if these corporations make the decision and continue to go forward in, if you will, shrinking their debt. All right. In other words, the economy has got to pick up so the corporations stop shrinking their debt in order for the money supply to grow, you know, at, at let's say, a normalized rate. Okay, the, the second example is, is uh, on the other side. The second example, you know, basically indicates that the Fed cannot control the money supply because they're forced to buy the deficits. All right, so now what are we talking about? If we go back 10 years ago and we say, you know, the United States government is running a deficit and someone has to lend the money to the United States government, who was lending the money to the United States government to cover that deficit? Well, first off, it was the Social Security funds and government pension funds. They were lending $0.45 of every dollar, right? Second off was foreign countries, namely Japan primarily and China, and they were lending about $0.30. So now $0.75 of that increased dollar in debt was coming from Social Security and other government pension funds and foreign countries. All right. The next two entities which were providing money were the Federal Reserve and the American public. All right, now you fast forward to last year. How much was the Social Security Fund buying of the deficit relative to the, what I said was 45 cents 10 years ago? They were buying two cents, two cents. All right, how much were, were the, the foreigners buying relative to what I said was 30 cents, you know, 10 years ago? they were buying a nickel. So instead of having the, the deficit being paid for by, if you will, uh, the, 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 these traditional sources, the deficit was being paid for the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was providing roughly 58 cents of every dollar and the American public was providing the rest. Now that switch, when you go away from foreigners and the social security fund buying the deficit, to the Federal Reserve buying the deficit, it's a big, big change.
3: Mm-hmm. The
2: big change is this. If the Social Security Fund buys the deficit, it's moving money from column A to column B, right? In other words, it's, it's taking money that would be using to do ABC and then using it to buy the treasuries so they're not increasing the money supply by doing this. Similar, uh, similarly, if the foreigners are buying the debt, they're not increasing the money supply because again, they're simply shifting the use of funds that they currently have. If the Federal Reserve buys the debt, they have to print the money to do it. They don't take money away from column B and put a column A and put it in column B. They print it. and they print a heck of a lot of it. Uh, and in you know the, the in 2002, I'm sorry 2020, we, we, were, we were printing enough, that the money supply of the United States was growing at above 50% um, and, and, and that, I'm sorry, above 25%, I, I overstated, yep. by, by above 25%. And we, we've never seen numbers like that going back historically. So, so basically, if, if we are gonna to continue to run sizable deficits, and if we can't sell that deficit, if we can't sell the treasury to these entities the Fed is going to have to print the money. It has no recourse. The United States cannot default on its debt. The United yep. States cannot extend out payments. The United States must pay the debt in a timely basis, and the only way they can do it at the present time is by having the Federal Reserve print it. So then who's, who's controlling the growth in the money supply? Is it the Federal Reserve because they're printing the money, or is it the Congress because they're creating the deficits? So I think not only does the Federal Reserve not know what the money supply is, I think that the Federal Reserve cannot control the increase in the money supply, either, and that's in my view a very frightening situation.
1: Well, just to put it in context, what are we at now? The national debt is twenty-eight trillion, or racing towards thirty trillion. We'll be there soon. Uh, global debt, $280 And you wonder, are those numbers even accurate? How do you calculate global debt? You're depending on every country to provide reliable numbers. But either way, it's a frightening scenario as you describe it. So how does it end? Does it end with super high inflation, taxes rising, a reset in the world economy? What's the picture?
2: I, I I think the answer to your question is yes. But I want to go back. Before, before touching that, I want to go back to what you said. How do we know that the number is correct? What we know is that the number is not correct. In other words, um, the United States government owns roughly 80% of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The United States government controls all of the operations of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The Supreme Court has certified the fact that the United States government is owning the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Well, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac has $6 trillion in debt. It's not on the budget. It's not in the deficit. And therefore, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is a government-owned entity, almost 100%, and is run by the government 100%, that $6 trillion should be added to the $28 trillion to show that there's $34 trillion in debt outstanding. So the first part, and this wasn't your point, but the first part of what you said is, is very accurate. We don't know what the correct number is you know, in terms of, of the deficit, along with not knowing what the money supply number is. Now, do I think that you know, if this situation continues as it has been going, uh, will that create, you know, additional inflation? Will we get into a nineteen seventy situation? I believe it will. I believe that you cannot grow money supply at rates substantially faster than real income growth. If you're going to grow money supply faster than real income, I think you're going to run into substantial inflation. So, you know, we're seeing, you know, snippets of inflation right now right in other words i don't know we're up over what was it The five percent
1: last month year over year i believe yeah and again we don't know whether that number is is an underestimate if based on some of the what you're seeing
2: yeah in other words that number is is estimated three times before they come up with the final number right in Mm -hmm. other words there's the first estimate the second and then the third and each Mm -hmm. estimate Adds additional information in order to make the calculation that be as correct as possible. But anyway, we're, we're looking at something between five and six percent right now, and, and when we look at that, we're not looking at adding in housing prices, and we do these funny things with you know determining how you calculate you know whether inflation has occurred. For example, um, let's assume you go out and buy an iPhone, and I don't know. You iPhones cost, what, 800 to 1,000 bucks at the present time. And maybe uh, you know, 10 years ago, they may have cost half that. So you'd assume if they cost half that, then inflation is up 50% in iPhones, but that's not the way they calculate it. What they say is the iPhone today has multiple functions that did not exist in the iPhone of 10 years ago, and we have to put a value on each one of those functions. So in calculating whether the price of the iPhone went up, we first have to say, what functions did they have 10 years ago? What functions do they have today? What was the cost of the functions 10 years ago? What is the cost of the functions today? And we don't come up with 50%. And then there's another neat thing that, that is done, which is done in the consumer price index. And I love this. This is the hamburger versus steak situation. And, and what, what, what the government says is, okay, the price of steak is going up. So people are not going to eat steak. They're going to eat hamburgers. So <laughs> we've got to lower the weighting of steak in the consumer price index and increase the weighting of hamburgers. So, you know, they, they adjust, if you will, for, you know, the proclivity of how the American public is going to consume goods based upon the price of the good which I think defeats the whole purpose of having the situation in the first place. What, what, is the, what is the basis of arguing that, you know, inflation is not growing that fast because you're telling me that people won't eat steak, they're gonna eat hamburgers and they're gonna do that with all other products. And of course, we've, we've now got this uh, shrinkage inflation. I don't know what the proper term is. it is, but, you know, if you can find something on the grocery shelf that was there a year ago, and compare it to something on the grocery shelf today, you'll see that the price is the same, but the amount of ounces in the product has been cut by maybe... Yeah, I I
1: had an example of that the other day, Dick. Fascinating example. We're buying a little gas um, container for a cookout, and uh, the manual said buy something 20.4 ounces, but there was only a 20-ounce one available at Dick's goods store. In other words, they shrunk it, by point four
2: yeah so in other words, the system is set up to basically uh, reduce you know the, 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 incre- the increase in inflation. Uh, and the reason why the system is set up that way is because the government owns 28 trillion dollars uh, and because uh, you know people who are on Social Security and the number as you're well aware, John is, is constantly growing, uh, they would get a bigger increase at the end of the year, you know, to uh, adjust for inflation. So, you know, the government does everything possible to come up with systems and logic and rationale, as do companies, uh, to show that uh, the price of goods are not going up. They are going up, and they're going up pretty meaningfully. And they're going to go up, in my view, a lot more meaningfully. Uh, this is not a transitory situation. And if they start to go up at 7%, and then drop back down to 5%, that's not a transitory impact. That's an increase in inflation.
1: Well, in the 70s, we had double-digit hyperinflations. Do you Mm. see that occurring? We've had this discussion, but it's good looking at it now in light of all the latest set of numbers. And my follow-up to that, if you could address, you mentioned Social Security recipients. Is this good news for them in a sense that they should see a bump up in their monthly checks?
2: Well, well in, in terms of uh, the last part, no, no, I don't think it's... I don't, I, I don't understand the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve says the 2% inflation is, is really good. Uh, I, I don't get it. I don't see how raising prices 2% a year on people who are more or less living on fixed income you know, is good. I don't, I don't think it's beneficial. I don't think you know, showing that uh, I may be earning uh, you know, 2% more in, in income Next year than this year uh, means that I'm getting wealthier when in fact the cost of everything I'm buying has gone up two percent. And I, 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 you know, I'm I'm addicted to my loaf of bread example. Uh, If if you can set up a situation which shows me I can buy more loaves of bread today than I could buy, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, I'd say, okay, that's great, that's not inflationary. But if I if I can't buy the same amount of loaf of bread, loaves of bread with uh, the same amount of dollars, then that's, that's inflationary and it's no good.
0: To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen. By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council.
1: My guest is Dick Beauvais of Audian Capital Group, and we're talking about the Federal Reserve monetary policy, and that terrible monster, inflation. I'm your host, John Aden Byrne. The takeaway here also is that a great hedge against inflation historically have been some of those assets like owning a home, farmland, gold, um, commodities, um, actual physical entities. Maybe not an iPhone, you know, they're a deteriorating asset or a mobile home.
2: Yeah, no, you're right. And that's and it's still true today. It's as true today as it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The ideal, if you will, uh, unit product, what have you, that you should buy if you believe, as I do, that inflation is picking up is a farm. Um, and, and, and there's two reasons for that. The first one is because everything you're growing on the farm is increasing in prices And the farm itself is increasing in price because, you know, the land has greater value because you're producing all of these products which go up in price. So, you know, I'd say, you know, if you want to buy the best inflation hedge of all, go buy a farm. Uh, Most people can't do that. So uh, I I do think that uh, gold, uh, cryptocurrencies um, you know, uh, and, and other commodities are, are where you should be positioning yourself if you believe, uh, as I do, that inflation is going to pick up.
1: You talk about the, your loaf bread example, which you discussed in a pre, and I like it. Um, a millionaire back in the 40s, 50s, or 30s is not the same as a millionaire today. Even though it has a nice, grandiose feel to it. Oh, that guy's a millionaire. Well, gosh, show me one from the 1930s. Then we're talking about real money.
2: Well, you know, how much is Aaron Rodgers going to get for re signing w- with Green Bay? Yeah. Uh, how, how, you know, we're paying baseball players and football players and basketball players more than anyone, uh, you know, $20, $30 million a year in, in you know, wages, uh, whatever they call them, wages <laughs> or what have you. I mean, is that does that make sense? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, we set up these oligopolies, uh, the government sets up these oligopolies, which allow these leagues to uh, control the number of entrants in so that they can control uh, pricing. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's not not positive. And unfortunately, the vast majority of the population of the United United States is not in, uh, you know, an oligopoly uh, controlled by, you know, an entity which is, you know, allowed by the United States government, you got to go out there and make more money to buy more products. And that, that's, that's stressful. And and to get back to the question that I didn't answer, I do think that that's going to be a problem. I do think it's going to, uh, upset the economy, and I do think that uh, no one cares about it at the moment. I mean, if the stock market is going to be a, you know, euphoric because, you know, uh, Mr. Powell comes out and says, you know, well, we, we, we're still too early to start tapering. We, we still have to, you know, continue to provide liquidity for the economy. Um, then, you know, essentially, there's, there's this, you know, point of view that there is no cost to printing money. We can print tr- tr- trillions of dollars of money, and there's no cost to doing it. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that there is a cost to doing it, and the cost is higher prices and, and lower real incomes and, and economic upset.
1: The Fed is hoping that this inflation we have with us now is temporary, and it's a, a, a supply issue. Know, what do know- you say to that? Could it moderate in the coming months when the economy returns to a more normal, although that looks less likely each day with this COVID variant?
2: Well, what I say to it is that, you know, you you would normally look at two areas to, to determine what inflation is not supply chains. You would look at wages, you know, labor costs, which are, I don't know what, 40, 50% of the cost of producing any product and uh you would look at commodities all right now what we're seeing is that there has been an adjustment in wages you can't cut them in other words you can't say okay we've had our our temporary blip in inflation and therefore now we're going to cut everybody's you know wages i mean bank of america claims it's going to pay 25 bucks uh uh, you know, minimum wage to its employees in the next couple of years, and I think they jumped it to $20, uh, you know, an hour. Now, they can't go back and say, okay, uh, we, we, you know, the inflation is over. You know, you, now you're going to get 15 bucks an hour again. Can't do it. So we, we, we're we building structural costs into the economy, which make it impossible to just say that this is going to be a temporary blip and that we're going to go and, and, and come back uh, to to lower Rates. now, you know, if if we use labor in any set of products, in, in whatever products you look at that you you consider to be labor intense in terms of their construction, then basically those products can't come down in price. They got to stay where they are because you've got to pay the laborers who who are creating them. So I. I have a lot of trouble, as I said before, and I apologize for repeating, for saying that you know I don't believe that inflation is good for anybody, number one. And number two, uh, I don't think once you build in certain costs in, in the production of goods in the economy, that you can all of a sudden turn around and, and reduce them simply because you know, the supply chain now has more products in it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it.
1: What's your forecast for inflation in the US globally?
2: I, I I don't make an official forecast, but let's say six to seven percent. Uh, you know, I think we're going to get to that level
1: within the, the next year 12, or by the end of the year.
2: Yeah, but in the next twelve months, I think we'll get to that
1: six seven percent.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's not that's not a very bold forecast because mm. we're almost there already. It's a chicken forecast. But the yep. point is? If yep. I was if I was making bold forecasts, I go much higher.
1: <laughs> um. So you think. We're in a whole lot of trouble. Is what you're telling us a separate concept from what we see going on in the in the economy? I mean, you look at the economists' uh, forecasts are saying we're going to come out of this, we're going to have great growth across the globe, even in in the UK. They've had post-COVID forecasts are great, but is all of that separate from what's happening? in the financial markets, and in the monetary system?
2: They're they're very much linked, uh, but linked in a fashion that people aren't considering. I really do think you have to pull out the numbers of the 1970s. I think in 1969, I don't remember if this is the exact number, uh, the stock market was selling at 18 times earnings. The 1970s come along, and it's one of the fastest growth periods in American history, I mean, earnings growth is extraordinarily high. In 1981, I believe that for a short period, the P/E multiple on the market was six. So, in other words, we had this tremendous growth in earnings, you know, in the 70s, which was a function of inflation. We we changed inventory, uh, you know, uh, valuation. From LIFO, you know, to FIFO, such so, so that we could, you know, get the, the highest uh, get the highest return uh, in in gross gross margins. But the market didn't buy it. It just didn't buy it. In, in other words, the market said, we don't think these are real earnings coming from the production of real output, and therefore, since we don't think that, we're going to lower the multiples on the stocks uh, that, that uh, you know show these increases in earnings and stock prices won't go up uh they they, they will they will flat out they will flatline. i mean at least that's what happened in that period and i i don't see why it's not going to happen again you
1: covered the banking sector last friday the wall street journal had a glowing report about the health or the so-called health of the u.s banking sector did you agree with them
2: no, I wanted to cry. <laughs> and the reason is because basically um, there is a total lack of understanding of where the earnings came from. So let, let's start at the, at the base level. There are no reserves against bank loans in any bank in the United States. In other words, if you think of reserves as a pile of money that has been set aside in a given set of accounts to be utilized to cover loan losses, it does not exist. There is no loan loss reserves in American banks. What there is, is kind of a mark-to-market uh, mechanism called the loan loss reserve, in which, you know, banks are allowed to create what they think is the appropriate reserve, if in fact they had a set of, a reserve put aside somewhere. And when you're, Creating a number like a loan loss reserve, right, on something that doesn't exist in the real world, you can put that number wherever you want, right? In other words, you can make assumptions as you did, you know, in, in early 2020 that basically the economy was going to be in trouble. And therefore, we'll take this mythical number called loan loss reserves and we'll make it big. And, and they dated big and the result was earnings went down in the banking industry and bank stocks did horribly uh, from the beginning of 2020 until roughly September. Uh, now, what happened in September? All of a sudden, there was an inkling that we'd get a vaccine uh, and it was evidenced in, in 2021 that we would have a whole bunch of people vaccinated and people would be going back to work and the economy would be stronger. So now we take this mythical number called loan loss reserves, and we get rid of it. We reduce it. And we reduce it by $90 billion. JP Morgan Chase reduced it by $10 billion. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that do to earnings? It means that in the first period, in 2020, you have an abnormally low number because you created this mythical number called reserves. And in 2021, you have an abnormally high number in earnings because you created a lower mythical number called loan loss reserves. Now, if you take that out of the picture, you say, okay, I don't want to consider loan loss reserves because they're playing games with that number. And you look at what is happening to the core earnings of the banks, i.e., are they selling more loans? Are their margins getting higher? Are your operating earnings getting lower? Well, they're not selling more loans. Their margins are not getting higher. So it means that on an operating basis, you know, the Wall Street Journal is simply dead wrong.
1: There's a couple of good reasons why the government and the Fed stepped in at the outset of the COVID crisis and issued a lot of money. It was as much humanitarian as political. And there might be other reasons I'm missing here. Will there come a point by your thinking that won't work? Prints more money and it's just not having any effect. If anything. It's having a very damaging effect.
2: Well, that's that's my fear, right? In other words, my fear is that the loaf of bread is going to go to four bucks uh, when my great grandchildren get to be seventeen. And and the reason (laughs) is because you know you can print the money, you can give it to people, uh, and so so so
1: really, it's a hyperinflation scenario. That's we're probably looking at the Weimar Republic.
2: Well, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't. It's pretty tough to, to assume that we're going to lose in Zaire uh, or uh, Weimar Germany. Uh, but I think inflation is going to be a problem.
1: Wow. So what's your advice then to investors? Again, uh, buy I, the farm, I guess, if you have money, but most people don't. Maybe buy, maybe buy a share in the farm.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, you can buy a share in the farm, but you, you, know, you can buy gold. You can buy silver. You can buy copper. You can buy um, a variety of companies that own land. Uh, you know, and, and I think uh, I, I think that those investments tend to make sense. And, and, you know, quite frankly, in the first year or two of an inflation, because earnings are so strong, uh, stock prices go up. It's when the inflation deepens that the stock prices run into difficulty, uh, because even though earnings are continuing to rise, the multiples are beginning to contract.
1: What about bonds? We know interest rates are real low, so interest rates may actually rise at some point, and that could impact the price of bonds. But what about stocks? Is that a whole bubble ready to
2: explode? Uh, yeah, again, uh, my, my hope is that it's not going to explode, but that it's going to be a gradual readjustment in valuation, and, and people will be able to uh, react to it and protect their, their, their wealth by you know adjusting to, to what's going on in, in the markets. But again, I mean... In the beginning periods of an inflation, stock prices go up, and, and I think they will, they will go up
1: here. Interest rates, where are they headed?
2: You know, it, the, the Fed at some point is, it's it's got to stop printing money, and, and when it stops printing money, uh, it, it is going to cause a, a rise in rates. If you take the example we started off with, uh, you know, which is what is money, um, if. if corporation, like JP Morgan goes to IBM and says, you know, you know, you're putting too much cash in the bank. If you keep putting cash in the bank, we've got to go out and sell more equity, uh, you know, to back your cash. We don't want to do that. So, you know, take your money out of the bank. Take some money out of the bank. All right. So let's assume IBM does that and they go and they buy treasuries and treasury rates are going to go down, right? Treasury rates are going to go down because Money which was sitting in the bank is now sitting in the U.S. government. Uh, and and I, I think that we're seeing a little bit of that happening at the present time. The problem is I don't have the mechanisms that would allow me to to, to, to make a, a very strong statement saying, you know, we are taking money out of the banks and putting it into treasuries, and that's keeping interest rates low in the treasuries. I, I, I can't say that to you it, with finality. Do I believe yep. it's happening? Yeah, I do.
1: You're not predicting a banking crisis here.
2: Yeah, no, there won't be a banking crisis because the banks will get more and more money yeah. uh, you know, coming in the door. So the, the, the banks are simply not, in my view, are not at risk in what I perceive will be, you know, this period of inflation. Even though their assets are primarily financial in nature and the value of their assets will be declining, there'll be so much more, you know, money coming in. Uh, so much stronger loan volume, so much higher margins that uh, the, 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 the multiples on the stocks may go down, but their earnings will be good and they won't be at risk.
1: So are they good stocks to hold, banking stocks?
2: I, you know, I just uh, reduced the weightings on um, 10 of the ones that, that I had buys on uh, and I reduced it down to four or five, uh, you know, uh, recommendations. In other words, I'm sticking with the uh, investment banks you know Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley uh, and I, I would say JP Morgan uh, and and I like uh, certain unique banks like uh, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank which is now called SVB Financial, uh, which I just think is the best bank in the United States by far so you know I'd I, I pick away at certain banks but I would not I would not advocate going in and buying a huge swath of bank stocks.
1: I just want to finish up on this insight, if you will. What we're witnessing today, I mean, every year it seems to be unprecedented, but this one certainly is. We're witnessing something that's as much political as financial, and we have to get that balance correct because there's great fear of unrest or turmoil, and it's a very um, polarized nation on all the issues.
2: Yeah, I I think... I think that's definitely correct. And then and let me go back to the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac example. Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are aggregating mortgages with the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is paying such a high price for these mortgages that it doesn't make sense for banks to buy, to originate a mortgage and put it on their books. Let's assume they originate a mortgage, they put it on their books, and for 30 years, they're going to collect 3% if they sell that mortgage instead through the fannie mae freddie mac system to the federal reserve they're going to get 5 5 and a quarter percent so they're just not going to they're just not going to buy the mortgages and put them on their books uh, as long as the as long as the federal reserve you know insists on buying so many mortgages you know and as long as the federal reserve insists on on changing the whole structure of pricing in the mortgage markets you know you're just not going to get the private sector coming in and, you know, building a solid mortgage market. That's socialism. (laughs) Oh, you know, and you can't have two companies owned by the government, dominating the whole market, funded by a government agency, the Federal Reserve, Reserve, because of their purchases, you know, that's just not pure democracy, pure capitalism. And I don't think it's democracy either. But the point is, you know, it's it's in in my view it's it's totally inappropriate. So, but
1: we do have a divided nation ideologically on the financial and political front. So, got to somehow bring all those together too.
2: We claim to have a divided nation, but on one issue, everybody seems to be in agreement that the Federal Reserve should bail out the economy, that the government should you know put up money to protect you know the 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 uh, vast majority of of uh, income holders, uh, income. Yeah, so
1: was. they all agree on that on the left and right, Republican Democrats. There's only a few yeah. holdouts.
2: Yeah, I, I don't see anybody disagreeing with, with those kinds those you know? I don't yeah. see them you know, running around arguing that Finney May and Freddie Mac should be given back to the private sector. Well,
1: you're sort of arguing with them, Dick. You say we're in dangerous territory.
2: Yeah, the, I mean, the Fed should not be driving economic growth. The Fed should be maintaining the value of the monetary system in a stable base. The Fed should be assisting, uh, you know, to, to see that, uh, you know, people have, you know, a place to work. But the Fed should not be the driving factor in any segment of the economy, and, and it is. Yeah. Uh, And and I think that that's very dangerous.
1: Let's regroup again in a few more weeks or months and see where we're at. It's always fascinating talking to you, Dick. And uh, thank you for being on my show.
2: Thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure.
1: On my next episode, we'll hear more about the pernicious damage the U.S. Federal Reserve can do despite any of its good and noble intentions. I'll be talking to Tom Ward. He's an economic advisor with a long career in the field, from the World Bank to some of the biggest firms out there. As the Fed shows signs of tapering, that is reducing the size of its bond-buying program, Tom Ward says Wall Street won't be exactly happy. I'm your host, John Adenburn. Byrne.
3: And you've seen the childness of Wall Street, they don't like tapering. As soon as they hear tapering, because they've gotten dependent on the Fed's money in the printing, they just think they're gonna constantly be moral hazardly bought out of any problem. Because for the last 10 years, I would argue, the market has not really been a market price market. It's been subsidized or covered by the Fed. So it hasn't really, you know, because it's buying up assets. And so are these assets all overly inflated? Luckily, officially, there hasn't been inflation through all this. But inflation is starting to creep up. The issue is, is what is inflation? A lot of people don't understand what inflation is. Inflation is based on a model from like the 50s. They keep trying to play around with it, much like GDP is based on the 50s and a certain model of basket of things. Often, depending on the different inflation numbers, it may or may not include the energy, which was the whole inflation of the 70s.
0: You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.